0: Welcome to Spiritual Psychology. My name's Renee LaVallee McKenna, and I bring my 30-plus years as a recovering addict, ex-crazy person turned therapist and shamanic healer to bring you snackable teachings on psychology, spirituality, and all things personal growth. And today I wanna talk about sacrifice and the lessons of letting go. Sacrifice is not a working part of our culture today. In fact, if we think about sacrifice, It might conjure up images of virgins being tossed into volcanoes or animals being slashed on some stone altar. And sacrifice was incorporated in many ancient cultures as a sacred practice and a wisdom teaching. Now, I'm not saying that beheading chickens or killing young girls is a great idea, but one way to understand the practice of sacrifice is to willingly offer things back to the universe. And the underlying wisdom of that is that the principles in this plane of reality are cyclical, that everything is impermanent, that there's a birth, there's a sustaining, and then there's a death, and that that's a cycle, that the death then makes room for the new birth. And I talk a lot about our unhealthy and immature relationship with death in Western culture because I think it's really important Our physical reality is a metaphor for our internal reality and I think the overflow of trash that we have in the world, the burden of material possessions that most of us struggle with, and our perpetual drive to achieve and acquire bigger, better, faster, more that drives people to exhaustion and kind of fuels our whole consumer culture points to this deeper difficulty that we have with the concept or reality of loss. I've come to believe that the deeper cycles and systems of the material plane are not a mistake. And we are supposed to subject ourselves to them because they change us and they encourage or even force us to grow and evolve. And the ever-changing cyclical birth-death process exists in all areas of our life. And how deeply we can surrender ourselves to it or our resistance or denial of it has a lot to do with our own internal peace and prosperity or stuck and suffering paradigm. That's kind of the human continuum (laughs) as I see it, peace and prosperity or stuck and suffering. (laughs) Having been on both ends of that, (laughs) there are some universal laws or principles that govern our existence, when we subject or submit ourselves to them, they can change and transform us in really powerful ways that push us more toward the peace and prosperity end of the spectrum. And letting go, or how we relate with the death process, and I'm not just talking about actual people dying, I'm talking about the larger metaphor of death, the mystery and wisdom of darkness, of nighttime, of rest, of the dissolution of things, institutions, ways of being that have cycles in our life. And when we fight against those cycles, it can cause some serious problems. When we align ourselves with these cycles of gain and loss, which often requires us to let go of our own ideas and will for ourselves, what we think we want, when we surrender to these larger principles of duality, things may go quite differently than what we might design or vision for ourselves. but my own experiences, they go much better. Probably my first real experience of this was in navigating my own seasonal depression. Every year, for many years earlier in my life, when it would start to get dark and cold in the fall and early winter, I would get depressed. I would gain 20 to 30 pounds. I would lose the ability to show up in my life in an effective way. I would isolate and I would hate myself. It was terrible. It's known as seasonal affective disorder and I had it pretty severely. I'm from New England, so the four seasons are very distinct. The cold and the darkness, the death of the sun, the loss of summer are pretty extreme. It's interesting to think of the seasons as part of this cyclical pattern of spring being birth, summer being sustenance, autumn being a letting go time. As the leaves drop from the trees, the days get shorter, frost comes, things turn brown, the earth no longer produces, and then the death of winter. Days are very short, things are blanketed in snow and ice. Winter can be hard. I can't tell you that I miss it, living in California now, but it taught me a lot. And if you've ever been in deep winter and seen trees that look dead for months, everything's colorless, it's kind of hard to believe that spring would come again, that those trees could actually produce buds. But spring comes, and they do, every year. And in fact, without that hard winter, there are many things that wouldn't happen. Tulips actually need to be kept cold for four to six weeks before they'll bloom appropriately. Lilacs and wisteria smell much more potent in places where they have a hard freeze than they do here in the Mediterranean climate that I live. Maple syrup wouldn't flow if the maple trees didn't have the harsh cold. The dark time helps the leaves to compost. And there's a natural blanket that covers everything with the leaves and snow. It was pretty early in my spiritual journey when I realized that what I was experiencing as seasonal depression was actually my own system going into fall and winter. And what if I allowed that to happen naturally? What if this was a natural circadian rhythm that I wasn't supposed to be in spring and summer and producing 100% all the time, like our culture wants us to? We're supposed to be in perpetual spring. You know, cells that proliferate and produce and reproduce over and over again are cancer. The dying off process is imperative for health, cellularly, seasonally, and in our own life. And when I decided to allow myself my own natural rhythms, I found that what I had formerly experienced as depression because I was fighting it was actually just a natural need to sleep more desire to stay in and kind of nest, and it was my resistance to this natural rhythm within myself, I was fighting this larger force. And that fight, this natural fall and winter that I experienced as depression, became my own self-deprecation and self-hatred. And so ever since then, I subject myself to the seasons. And in the fall and winter, I do more crafting, more cooking, I go to bed early, I have lots of yummy, warm, fuzzy clothes that I wear, I turn on my heater, I burn candles that smell nice, and I let myself rest. And for me, I don't experience that as depression anymore. So the idea of sacrifice as a ritual is to actively acknowledge and participate in that natural loss process. In many ancient religions, that was seen as the gods wanting to be fed, that the loss was seen as a hunger of the universe requiring us to feed it. And there's a backstory of a very famous myth that's really instructive of what happens if we don't participate in the healthy dynamic of sacrifice. Most of us are familiar with the myth of the minotaur and the labyrinth. But there's a backstory, which is how the Minotaur got created, that's really instructive. It is interesting that the labyrinth, and I love labyrinths myself, I love walking labyrinths, but that the labyrinth has become a really powerful spiritual symbol. And in this myth, it holds a monster in the center. So the Minotaur's father was Minos, who was the king of Crete. And Minos, like a lot of kings and queens in Greek mythology, was part god. His father was Zeus, and his mother was a Phoenician princess. And he was married to Pasiphae, who was the daughter of Helios, who is the sun god. After Minos ascended to the throne of Crete, he struggled with his brothers for the right to rule. And he prayed to the god Poseidon, the sea god, to give him a sign. And out of the waves came a snow-white bull, and Minos took this as his sign of approval, and he defeated his brothers, but the requirement was that he was to sacrifice the bull in honor of Poseidon. We might not think much about cows these days, but cattle was a significant part of people's wealth, and a healthy, magnificent bull, I imagine, was a tremendous prize. And Minos didn't want to sacrifice the bull, so he decided to keep it, and he sacrificed some goats instead. And Poseidon got pissed because Minos didn't keep his part of the bargain. And so to punish Minos, Poseidon had Aphrodite, the goddess of love, make Minos's wife, Pasiphae, fall in love with the bull. She fell madly, passionately in love with the bull and had Daedalus, who's the guy who actually constructed the labyrinth, he was the kingdom inventor, construct a contraption so she could have sex with the bull. And she did. And after the bull fucked her, she got a minotaur. And the Minotaur was her child, and she loved the Minotaur, and she didn't want to let the Minotaur go. And Minos loved his wife, so they built the labyrinth as the Minotaur got bigger and nastier and wanted to eat people. And the myth goes on, and Theseus comes and kills the Minotaur. Theseus is actually kind of a dick, but that's a other story. (laughs) He has Minos' daughter Ariadne help him get in and out of the labyrinth, And she falls in love with him and he tells her he'll be with her and then he ends up leaving her on an island and going off and getting drunk and chasing other women. Anyway, so much for Greek heroes. But for the purpose here today, the formation of the Minotaur is really instructive of what happens when we don't let go, when we don't sacrifice that which needs to be released When we try to get away with keeping things past their time or not participating in this natural gathering, releasing process, then the things that we keep become monstrous and destructive. When we work with the principles of the universe, we actually can't get away with anything. And when we try, we suffer. I did a workshop on the myth of Minos and the Minotaur a few years ago, and it's very powerful to look at mythology as if each of the characters could be a part of us or to see which characters we identify with. Some people identified with Minos, the king seeking power, not wanting to let go. Some identified with Pasiphae, getting love addicted to things that were destructive for them. Some identified with the Minotaur and feeling victimized by their family circumstances, imprisoned in a dysfunctional structure they couldn't get out of. And one of the attendees identified with the white bull, that she had been the great hope of her parents, and they had been unable to let her grow, unable to let her grow and develop. They tried to keep her safe, and she didn't naturally develop her own resilience. She said, I feel like my parents sacrificed my life energy for their comfort or to avoid their own fear of loss. Remember this really powerful exchange between Oprah Winfrey and Wayne Dyer on one of her podcasts, and they were these parents of a set of twins, and one of the twins had died very early in life in his first few years, and the parents could not get over the grief. They were devastated by the death of this child, and it really impacted their ability to parent the remaining twin. And Wayne Dyer said to them, you need to let go of what is no longer here and be with what is. That this chronic grief of every year at the child's birthday, feeling like they should be there. The boy didn't get to play Little League. He won't graduate from high school. He'll never get married. He won't bear them grandchildren. That the shadow of this dead child will cast itself upon the living brother for his whole life and color everything he does. That his birthday, his little league, his high school graduation, his marriage, his children will always be under the weight of the twin that wasn't. And that this is a fallacy and a fantasy that's very destructive. The loss of a child is very difficult. And when we move through loss deeply and orient ourselves to it with acceptance, then the loss need not be grief. The level of our grief is generally the level at which we remain attached. And there's a difference between loss and grief. And when we release our attachment, the grief resolves. And like the leaves become compost for fertile earth after they fall from the tree, loss can become compost to enrich us and wisen us, Make us more resilient, more fertile. Grief makes us brittle, frightened, contracted. And he said to these young parents, you need to be grateful for the time that you had that child with you because that's what's real. Rejoice that you got to spend the time that you did with him and focus on the child that remains. Be with what is, not with the fantasy of what wasn't. Because when we hold on to what needs to be let go, like the minotaur, it becomes a monstrous form. And then we often need to construct elaborate labyrinths to then hold the monster that we have created. And all of that is unnecessary if we're willing to sacrifice the bull. Hard as that is, the consequences of holding on can be terrible. We might not like the fact that all things are impermanent. All people are impermanent, all relationships, circumstances, governments, species, every day, every season, they're impermanent. And sometimes it can be deeply moving and sad to feel that, but it can also call us to live deeply now with what is here, with the life that is before us and with what remains right now, because that's what's real. And when we try to cheat this natural cycle of birth and death, of creation and dissolution, we do so at our own peril, because we really can't cheat the gods, which one could see as the principles of reality on this plane of existence. If you're interested in finding out how spiritual psychology work might be helpful in your life, either for a series of one-on-one sessions or my three-month mentorship programs, shoot me an email info at McKenna.com. Blessings on your path until we meet again. This is Renee LaValle McKenna for Spiritual Psychology.